Good morning and welcome. My name is Scott Warner and I'm president of the Culinary Historians of Chicago. And today we have a renowned, classically trained French chef who will tell us how he's become a modern day virtual chef by adapting to social media and bringing his business into the 21st century. Now on to today's program starring Chef Dominique, who I've known for over 20 years. Uh, the first thing I'm going to do before he speaks, uh, I'm going to ask Chef Dominique to tell us how he pronounces his last name. It's spelled like, t it's spelled like tongue, but misspelled T-O-U-G-N-E. And I studied French. Well, let me guess first. Is it Tugne? Tugne. Tugne. Yes. Like, like almost like tuna, but Tugne. Tugne is well spelled. Tongue is, is misspelled. He said Tunya is spelled correctly, tongue is misspelled. So, <laughs> uh, Chef Dominique Tunya was born in Alsace, the northeast region of France. At age 14, he began his training at the culinary school in Blois, Blois outside of Paris. He continued his career under such renowned chefs as uh, Joel Robichon, uh, I guess he was considered the world's greatest chef. In 1996, Chef Tunia was, was recruited by the Levy Restaurant Organization to be chef de cuisine at Bistro 110, across from the Water Tower in Chicago. Uh, he remained at this popular culinary mecca for 15 years. Then in 2012, along with Cristobal Hewitt, the former Blackhawks player, he created Chez Moi, a French bistro in Lincoln Park. I first met Chef Tunia about 20 years ago when his former boss, again, Chef Joel Robichon, came to Chicago to help celebrate Chicago's relationship with Paris as our sister city. And Chef Robichon chose Dominique's Bistro 110 to showcase his talents while he was here by doing a series of very special dinners at this very popular Gold Coast restaurant. And I had the honor of attending one of those dinners uh, that was uh, a sold-out event where only the top chefs in Chicago were allowed to come, along with Mayor Daly, to pay homage or homage to, to Chef Robichon. And I got to interview Chef Tunia, Chef Robichon, and Mayor Daly for a story I was writing for the Sun-Times. And that's literally a whole other story. But one of the wonderful things that came out of that was I got to know Chef Dominique and I invited him to speak before the culinary historians of Chicago at that time. And he did a wow, he a wow of a talk for our group. And I thought it was a long time overdue to invite him back to give us a second course. So to use a French word without further ado, I'd like to present Chef Dominique Tunia for his current presentation and how he's become a virtual chef and his history to Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Merci. Well, thank you uh, very much, everybody, for being here. Thank you, Scott. Uh, I've been very lucky in my career. You know, it's been, uh, well, you're going to know how old I am, okay, but it's going to be 40 years I've been in this business. Then, uh, like Scott just said, I started, I was uh, 14, then I let you do the math. It's not very complicated. Um, you know, I'm going to start today with a little joke that I like. And the reason of that is because today I believe that there is way too many people in my industry 
that have such a big ego and self-esteem that it just bugged me. <laughs> and uh, I think, you know, I think people forget, sorry, people, people forget that uh, whatever we are, we are cooks, you know. I, the, the title of chef, you know, is because it's convenient in the kitchen, but we are still cook, you know, we are cooking every day. It's, uh, it's nothing compared to what the people do in a establishment like this one, okay? We are, we are not saving life. We are trying just to make people's life a little bit better for about an hour and a half, you know, when they come in our place. So uh, here is the story. It's two guys, you know, it's a French guy and a Greek guy. They are talking. And the Greek guy look at the French. He said, you know us, we invented olive oil. And the French guy look at him and say, yeah, but you know us, we made it better. If you look in Provence, you know, we have this olive oil that is... Uh, you know, uh, some, uh, you know, aged, and we have some flavors like lavender, etc. And well, the Greek guy, a little bit frustrated, said, you know, yeah, but us, we invented wine. The guy said, no, you're right, you know, the, the Greek invented wine, but us, the French, we made it better. You know, we have a, a very well-known chateau, Clima in, uh, in Bourgogne, Bordeaux, all over the different region. Greek guy is a little bit frustrated, and he look at, he think a lot, and you look at the French guy, he said, yeah, but you know us, the Greek, we invented love. And the French guy think about it, he look at him, he say, yes, but you know what? Us, the French, we introduce it to women. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, here is my experience with uh, Wise Hospital. You know, I was talking earlier with uh, Scott, he had some surgery. I did also had some surgery. And uh, I don't know if any of you know what is a rhino rocket, but that's what they had to put in my nose in this location. And... I was not happy with them. You know, it's one of the things they stick in your nose, whatever. It's not really fun, but... Um, so, uh, my background, born and raised in France. I was born in Alsace. My dad was uh, in the Air Force. And uh, actually, he happens to be trained in USA after the, the Second World War. You know, uh, there were an exchange program between France and USA, and they were taking those kids uh, from France to train them in, uh, in USA, in Columbus. I don't know which one. There is so many Colomb Columbus in USA. But uh, where they had an Air Force um, camp, basically, and they trained him for a year to become a, a pilot, uh, went back to France, and uh, when you are in the French military, I guess it's the same here, you know, you travel all around every four years, you know, you have a different place where you have to go. So I happened to, uh, being the son of a pilot, I landed in Alsace, in a town called Haguenau, which is near Strasbourg, uh, and uh, definitely born in a in a family that was surrounded with food and wine. My dad was born in Saint-Estef, for the people who are familiar with Medoc wine, you know, one of the best regions for, for the wine, uh, Mouton Rothschild, you know, and all of this kind of, uh, of play, chateau are over there. My great-uncle was a winemaker for a well-known chateau also in, in Medoc, which is uh, Cos d'Estournel. You will say Co here, it's C-O-S, but it's pronounced Cos. Destournel, and my mom also was born in the southwest. So my, uh, my family roots, even if I was born in Alsace, which is a fantastic region for food and wine, uh, my family route is definitely southwest. The, um, uh, my grandparents used to have a restaurant near the, I mean, in, in the Medoc, uh, but I never really knew it. I, I really didn't like my grandparents. <clears throat> you know, I mean, they were not really nice, but whatever. <laughs> That's the weather. You know, things happen. You know, some people are not really where they should be when they are grandparents. And, um, but apparently my grandmother was a very good cook, um, which I wish 
I could learn from her because there, she was cooking apparently some very regional food, you know, such as the, the, the baby eel. I don't know if you heard about that. It's called pibal or civel in French. It's a very, very uh, rare today. Uh, very difficult to cook also. Simple, but so difficult. And uh, I decided to go to do my culinary school in Blois. Blois, it's about an hour and a half from Paris. Uh, I was talking earlier, and it's one of the regions of France where the, the French apparently is the purest. For people who want to learn to speak French, the region of Blois, Tours, it's uh, apparently the best because there is no accent. You know, like me, I don't have any French accent. Uh, <laughs> over there, they don't have the uh, uh, a local accent. You know, like if you go to Southwest or Marseille or Alsace, you know, they can have some serious uh, regional accent. In Tours, they don't. So I decided to do my culinary school over there. I spent uh, three years. And uh, during these uh, years of school, I had uh, the fortune to do some internship in some very cool restaurant. And I met, uh, I was working at the Hotel Nico in Paris, which is, uh, the people who know uh, Paris, it's on the 15th arrondissement, close to the, the Maison de Radio France. Actually, it's next to the original Statue of Liberty. Then uh, there is a small Statue of Liberty, you know, not as big as the one you have in New York, uh, but that's the one that was uh, made by uh, Bartholdi and by um, uh, Eiffel. Okay, there was, no, not Eiffel, uh, Bartholdi and whatever. Um, and that's where they used this one actually to create the, the big masterpiece uh, you, you have in New York. Um, and I also work at the Intercontinental in Paris. So uh, two very good places that allowed me, which was really cool at the time, those internships gave me basically a job right after my school. You know, then I was, uh, I started in a restaurant at 14 years old, went to my school, and right after that, I went back to work. You know, then uh, when I see today the kids, including mine, that are 19, 20, 22, and they still don't know what they want to do, I'm just like, oh my God. <laughs> and everybody says, yeah, but you know, they are millennial. Yeah, I don't care. I mean, go to work, you know? <laughs> I don't care what you do, go to work, you know? Um, so uh, uh, my career after that in, uh, in France was uh, like every young person. You know, you go, uh, pardon my French, but you shut up. <laughs> you do what they tell you to do. You don't ask how much money they're going to pay you. You don't ask how many hours you're going to work. You just do it, you know, and uh, uh, many people are not going to follow because it's very hard. But I think the people that continue on this business, you know, uh, going to are going to have the, the good ethic and the, the, the way to do it is okay. You know, it's a hard job. It's uh, uh, when you start in that, you never stop. Okay, that's uh, and like I say, it's been 40 years. I put this jacket 40 years ago, not this one, okay, because I was not that big at the time, but uh, I. <laughs> put a jacket like that 40 years ago, and I keep wearing this jacket pretty much every single day. Okay, it's really rare when I have a day where I don't put this jacket on, uh, on my shoulder. So um, it's definitely, uh, uh, you know, you know it's, uh, it's a work of passion, it's a work of uh, uh, giving, you know, you have to make sure that you pass your knowledge to the other people, um, which have been also a, a big part of my life, and definitely in, uh, in Bistro 110. So uh, doing that, uh, working in France, brought me to, uh, to work with Jacques Sénéchal first at the NICO. And Jacques Sénéchal has a huge influence on, uh, on me because uh, he was really the first chef that I worked with at the time that was nice. <laughs> okay, that's uh, 
it was really, really unusual. You know, I mean, uh, I remember working with people when you're a kid. Um, let me tell you an anecdote. One day I was doing, uh, uh, the chef, I didn't know what it was, asked me to do like a, um, uh, a chicken stock, okay? Okay, then, uh, you know, first, you know, when you cook at home, you're a kid, you have pots that big, you know, and I arrived to the thing and the thing was like my size, you know, that tall and uh, I don't know how many gallons of water in the thing, you know. So the guy told me, okay, you keep an eye on it. Okay, you know, you're a kid, yeah, you have a huge spatula with me and, you know, you know, just tear it. You don't really know why, but <laughs> the guy told you to do so. He come by, by me like uh, 15 minutes later and he told me, okay, did you season it? Like, no, nobody told me. Okay, then he said, test it and season it. And, you know, like at home, you know, at the time, put my finger, yeah. how's that test? I don't know, <laughs> you know, you don't know. It's the first time, you don't know. And uh, the guy said, okay, you put some salt in it, it needs more salt. Then, you know, I go grab the salt, like at home, little pinch of salt, you know, in something like the size of a swimming pool. And I keep staring, and the guy come back, like 15 minutes later, he said, okay, did you season? I said, yes, I did, you know, I was pretty proud. Of it. Of course I did, you know, and the uh, guy this it. The heck are you talking about? There is no seasoning on the things. I put it, you know, and I put more, okay. Put a little bit more, three times like that. Well, guess what? The last time after he stopped to scream at me and pretty, pretty upset, he had a big spatula, you know, and slapped me on my uh, butt. <laughs> Thank God I had some, you know, resistance there. And um, then frustrated, I take the salt and, you know, put it in, you know. Guess what? I ruined the entire thing. <laughs> then I was in big trouble, okay, because the thing was over salty and impossible to use. And I don't remember how many gallons of, uh, of uh, chicken stock I ruined. So those are the kind of experience you go through, you know, in, the, in those kitchen. And uh, uh, you learn like that. At the time, it was okay, you know, to... Uh, physically abuse people. I mean, that was pretty, and again, which was, no, but that's, that's weird today, you know, when you think about it, but uh, I, saw, I saw some of my friends literally being kicked, you know, I mean, uh, physically kicked to the point where they were on the ground, and, you know, everybody was passing by, and uh, can you imagine today? I will not be here talking to you, <laughs> I mean, that's for sure. So, Seneschal was kind of uh, the exception. When I arrived in, the, in this hotel, I saw this guy that was at the head of an 800 bedroom hotel, uh, four or five different restaurants, the Benke, the Celebrité, the Pont Mirabeau, etc. And this guy was at, uh, I don't remember the brigade, or just for the kitchen was probably 150 people, you know? I mean, you don't find those kind of, uh, of uh, team anymore today, you know? Uh, and he was super nice. He was somebody that respects you, you know, no, no matter what age, no matter what function, no matter what you were doing, he, he showed you some respect. So because of that, all the sous chefs around were doing the same. I think, you know, the, I, I keep saying that to my people today, you lead by example, you know, and uh, if you want to have the people to treat you well, uh, first of all, treat them well, you know, respect yourself, respect them, and you will have something in return. And that's what I learned from Seneschal. Um, so Seneschal also, what was interesting, took over the Nico at the time after Robuchon, uh, that was already on my path and I didn't know it. Uh, when Robuchon left the Nico, he went to another place called the Concorde Lafayette in Paris and he was a younger chef to, uh, to bring such a big place with, I, I think he had the three Michelin stars very quickly over there. 
And then after that, Robuchon moved to uh, Le Jamin in Paris, uh, Paris, Rue de Longchamp, where he became, that's where he really became famous, you know, TV show. And uh, he became the, um, at the end of the 1900s, he was the chef of the century, the chef of the chef. Then a huge name, um, but a little bit the opposite of what was Sénéchal. <laughs> okay, then uh, I was talking about that with Scott and uh, um, thinking about it now, you know, I really think that Robuchon, who just actually passed a year ago, sadly, last year it was a terrible year, we lost Bocuse and Robuchon, which uh, personally for me that was a disaster, but I knew for Bocuse he was 90-something years old, Robuchon took me by surprise. Um, but I spent... Uh, other than other different restaurants in Paris, I spent almost three years in, uh, with Robuchon in uh, Rue de Raymond Poincaré in, uh, in Paris. Completely different experience, okay? I mean, uh, I felt at this time that it was for a cook working with Robuchon like probably, you know, a, a young artist could have feel when he was working with Leonardo da Vinci, you know? I mean, you, you rarely uh, have the opportunity to reach this level of perfection. And uh, uh, I think it's only certain people who can have that. Um, I think Robuchon was bipolar, <laughs> maybe even a little bit of, uh, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, some other mental disorder. But what a wonderful person to, uh, to learn from, because um, there is no place for mistake, no place for, uh, you know, uh, uh, anything that was a little bit on the side, you know, that, that was not acceptable. So I uh, spent three years with him, and uh, I think I did a pretty good job for him, because when I arrived in USA, then I arrived in Chicago in 1995, to uh, like Scott said, and um, actually I arrived in New York, went from New York to open a place in Atlanta for a company, I uh, will not mention the name because they were not nice people. Maybe because they were French, I don't know. Uh, but they were not nice people. They brought me to Atlanta to open a restaurant before the Olympic Games of 1996. And uh, that was a goal. But I never saw the Olympic Games I lived before. The uh, headhunter from Chicago found me through Levy Restaurant. And they brought me, they asked me to, uh, to come and to become the chef of Bistro 110 which I did for uh, 15 years until the company was bought and uh, decided to do something else. So, uh, completely different experience. You can imagine, okay, first time I ever traveled, I came in USA, today I can say it, I am an American citizen, and if there is a policeman, stay, sit down, okay? I arrived here, I was illegal, okay, just if I can ring a bell of what's happening around here. Uh, but I arrived here, I was illegal. I did my paperwork. I went back to France. I obtained a visa, O-1 visa. It was a big fight. Uh, went back to France to uh, take it to the American embassy in Paris. And they brought me back in Chicago with this visa. Went through the thing to the green card. And after the green card, my citizenship. But um, um, when I arrived here, I didn't speak a word of English. I barely speak English today, but I mean, I'm doing much better than 20 years ago, believe me. So uh, it was not easy because coming from a Robuchon restaurant where we were 50 employees pretty much for 50 cover, uh, one sitting, you know, that's it. And arriving to Bistro 110, when I arrived there, the restaurant was a little bit smaller than it was uh, when I left, but uh, we had about 200 seats. It was about 100 employees, and we were doing about an average of seven, 800 people a day. So I arrived in this restaurant with my 50 seats and 
you know, if you have to put five peas in a plate, it was five, not four, not six, it was five. And I see this food passing in front of me, you know, an entire chicken on a plate, uh, pieces of salmon that was kind of a half of a fish, you know, and I was like, oh my God, that's for how many people? That was for one person, you know? So uh, very difficult to, um, to understand, but my, um, my first reaction was, okay, let's try to bring what I learned from those guys in France and to see how I can adapt that to such a big value restaurant, you know? I mean, that's, that was really my goal. Then. With what we had, the kitchen was extremely small. Uh, my employees were really not trained, you know, it's not, uh, they never went to school. Like uh, in France, if you go in a restaurant, every kid went to school to learn at different level. But if you ask them what is a mayonnaise, they don't just bring you a jar of something already made, you know, no, they're going to bring you the eggs, the oil, the mustard, they know how it works, you know. So uh, all of a sudden I arrived there and I had to completely readapt my uh, my standards and my my vision, you know, and that was definitely my goal. My goal was to say, okay, let's try to do big volume, but to work with the same ethic by having the right products, the right training, making sure that we are going to proceed on the correct way. That obviously people have to be clean, people have to be organized, they have to be on time, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It took me a little bit of time. To, uh, to achieve it, uh, but you know, I think with example, and since I didn't speak English, my only communication skill was showing, okay? I had, to, uh, I had a knife, I had a cutting board, and that's all I needed, you know? Then I was just, okay, let's do it. We're going to do it together, and, uh, and we're going to go step by step, and that's what I did. And my boss at the time, Doug Roth, for people who are from Chicago, I don't know if you know the Roth family, okay? Don Roth, who used to have, a, you know, a, what's the name, a Black Hawk restaurant, and after that they had Bistro 110, etc. Uh, Doug Roth, uh, not an easy person to work with, but uh, we became very close, decided to bring Joel Robuchon at Bistro 110 for the, I don't remember now, the 10th anniversary, I believe, in 1997, 98. And I was just like, oh my God, you know, how are we going to do that? <laughs> That's going to be the kitchen of Joël Robuchon, you have to understand. It's like a medical laboratory, okay? Everything is like sterile, okay? Bistro 110 was not like that. <laughs> we had a kitchen, but not this level. Uh, I go to Paris with Doug. We met with uh, Robuchon. And Robuchon listened to, uh, to us. He looked at me, he said, okay, he said, Dominique, you know, he said, um, let me tell you, so I have people offering me to bring me their private jet to come to pick me up in Paris, to take me to their house. They offer me a gold, you know, a, a bridge of, uh, of money to, uh, to go to their place, and I systematically, systematically decline it. And I was like, okay, that's a good start. And he looked at me and he said, and Douglas was next to me, he looked at me and he said, I'm going to do it, and I'm doing it for you. I was like, oh, <laughs> great. But when you know the guy, I'm telling you, the pressure is enormous, okay? <laughs> In my job, that's enormous. So I was proud, and I was so scared, <laughs> but I couldn't show that. So we decided to move forward. We, uh, we set up this event that Scott uh, mentioned earlier. We did uh, three dinner of uh, 200 people each night, and uh, it was sold out. Um, and we did Robuchon food. And I did Robuchon food with people that never heard about Robuchon in their life. So I had, a, I had to train uh, 
my uh, Mexican and uh, Uruguayan and Equatorian friends, you know, most of them thought that Robuchon was a cheese, you know, and uh, which is not really the same, even if it sounds like it. And uh, trying, it took me nine months to explain my purveyors and everybody how to do it because nobody had a clue. We never, that never happened really in USA at this level. Um, I have to identify the product. Then you, I have so many uh, stories that I'm sure I'm going to forget some. But uh, with Robuchon, you wanted to have some caviar. We did one dish of Robuchon was uh, creme de cat, the lobster, lobster uh, gelée with a cauliflower cream and a, and a ossietra caviar. So the dish consists in a little bowl to have the caviar on the bottom covered with a lobster uh, clarified gelée, gelatine kind of, and the cream of cauliflower just with the top. And each one was pointed with a chlorophyll mayonnaise, you know, like little dots of green things all around. For three times 600, uh, 200 people, okay? Though, so I needed something like seven kilo of Ossietra caviar, and he wanted to have the Ossietra caviar from Iran. <laughs> Guess what? USA and Iran, they are not really best friends, okay? So it's very difficult to get Iranian products. So uh, I, told, I told that to Robuchon, you know, went back to Paris, we talked about it, and seven, seven kilo of Ossietra, and he wanted to have the little eggs gray, which are the rarest, the most expensive and very difficult to find, okay? So here's Robuchon's idea, he said, listen, we're going to go to uh, La Maison du Caviar in Paris, and he's my friend over there, we're going to ask him to give us the selection of the caviar, put those caviar, this Iranian caviar in, um, in uh, Russian boxes, and we're going to send it through the Canadian border. Oh my God, now <laughs> trying to cook, not to be like, you know, I mean, what the heck is that? So here we are, we, we, the guy does that, he put the Russian box, uh, boxes, whatever, send it to the border in Canada. Well, the Canadian uh, custom are not that stupid, and uh, they knew something was kind of fishy, if I can say. Um, and they, Say they return the caviar, we lost seven kilo of one of the rarest caviar. Here I am, it was like a week, maybe 10 days before uh, Robuchon um, came in Chicago. I called Robuchon and he was on his way to Tokyo where he opened a place at the time with a Taiwan in, uh, in the center of Tokyo. I called him, I said, okay, I have a situation here, the caviar didn't make it. He said, okay, you gotta call Petrosian in New York and ask Petrosian to send you seven kilos to replace his caviar. And, uh, and he said, but the one, what I want is, I want Petrosian to come to visit me, to send me, to show me the sample he has in New York that are available right now. Of course, we pay for it, then why not? So I call Petrosian, Petrosian get on a, on a plane, go to, the, to Paris, meet with Robuchon, they decide on the caviar, okay, whatever, they decided over there, come back to, Chicago, to New York, put seven kilos of caviar in my direction. And I get seven kilos of caviar, then remember, that's 14 kilos of caviar. It's a lot of caviar, guys. Robuchon was in Tokyo at the time, flying back from Tokyo to Chicago for our event. He arrived the day before, he comes in the kitchen, he said, okay, I want to see the caviar, first thing. Okay, fine, you know, I was really proud. I had all my seven bucks, beautiful, the big rubber band around it, fantastic. He opened the first box, you know, of caviar, he looked at it, he looked at me, and he was like, Dominic, c'est quoi cette merde? What is this shit? I was like, <laughs> I said, chef, I don't know, I mean, that's a, the caviar you selected with um, 
with uh, Monsieur Petrosian in Paris. Uh, that's why he sent me. I didn't even open the box. He said, well, look. I said, yes, okay. He said, you see that? And I said, yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know what to tell him. He said, look, there is like those little eggs on top. They are crushed. I said, okay. He said, that's the bottom of the barrel. That's the, the bottom of the barrel. He sent you the bottom of the barrel. I was like, damn, okay, what, what does that change? You know, I mean, uh, he said, that's unacceptable. Then he opened the seven boxes. Three of them were not right. Look at me. And that was, the, the event was the next day uh, in the evening. Look at me. He said, okay, you call Petrosian right now. You tell him that if he doesn't change your three kilo of caviar by tomorrow morning, when I go back to France, I'm going to write an article about how poor the quality of his product is in New York. He said, Okay, so, you know, I was probably as white as my jacket, you know, I said, yes, chef, of course. Called the woman, the assistant of Petrosian in New York. She called me all the possible names. I was trying to be very quiet. I said, listen, I'm just a messenger, okay? <laughs> and uh, don't shoot the ambulance here. Figure it out. I need three kilos of caviar tomorrow. All of this, I have to tell you, was mostly because of ego. Okay, that was really based mostly on ego. He had to do his little tantrum to show who is the boss. Okay, so, and honestly, the caviar, uh, I can tell you that probably 99.9% .9 of the population will have never known that there were a couple of eggs that were crushed, okay? But that was Robuchon. That was his way of doing things, the perfection. And guess what? He, he had what he wanted. The next morning, we received three kilos of caviar. So... For this event, we basically deal with 17 kilos of Ossietra caviar. The, the amount was um, uh, enormous. I don't remember how much it was, but uh, at the time, we spent a quarter million dollars just for these three dinners. Then uh, we didn't make any money out of it, but a lot of publicity and a lot of... Uh, it, it was really fun to have him. But after this tantrum, he became super nice because he, he won. Then basically, it was be that's what it was. It was a winning situation, and he wanted to win and show that he was Robuchon. Then... Uh, we can discuss if it was good or bad, but I respect. Now I, I think about it, you know, 20 years after, I'm just like, wow, that was kind of a big lesson <laughs> to everybody. Now, good or bad, everybody can think about it. The, um, so that was my experience with Robuchon. And the, the, the thing with Robuchon that uh, opened up is when I went to see other chefs after that to do a food event at, at Bistro 110, it was very easy. Because if you can do Robuchon, you can do everybody. So, uh, so I went to uh, Paul Bocuse, and that became like, that became my caviar, okay? <laughs> that was, uh, Paul Bocuse became a personal friend. Uh, grandfather, father, brother, I don't know what, he, what it was, but uh, an incredible uh, culinarian uh, master, and uh, I mean, I, there is no, no term to uh, describe Bocuse. And uh, when we did Bocuse, we had the chance to have him, to, it was super easy. Uh, we did some of his most famous uh, dishes, you know, the, the soup végéo, the, I mean, I don't know if you know the soup végéo, it's... Um, it's a soup that he created for the election of the French president, Valéry Giscard d'Estaing, 
I believe, in 1974 when he was elected. And it's a soup that is served in a bowl, and it's basically braised uh, beef cheeks, and it's uh, with a carrot, celery, and uh, foie gras, and truffle. So, uh, and this is covered with a pastry, and it's uh, baked in the oven. And it's, it looks like a mongolfier, kind of, you know, it looks like a balloon. It's, uh, it's really cool. So uh, we did that, we did the chicken and morel, we did the salmon en croûte, you know, all the traditional bokus, way, way, way easier, but same uh, detail to the quality and attention to the quality. The, that's where I think I was extremely lucky as a young chef, because I was with this guy, where we became extremely close, and we had the best experience. I brought him to Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, to do another dinner over there, and uh, we were in a mansion, sitting in the morning, we wake up early, both of us, on a rocking chair, and here I am, next to me, Paul Bocuse, telling me the story of his life. We were, uh, it was maybe like 6 a.m., those people probably thought we were crazy. We were crying, laughing. I mean, that was just the, the story he had, and when people were, who knew uh, Paul Bocuse, no, he, was, uh, he loved jokes and things like that. And... Uh, for me, I was really laughing out because the story was super funny. And for him, I realized that I believe that the tears were not just because he was crying and laughing, but I think it was also a lot of nostalgia. You know, when he was talking about uh, Trois Gros and Le Nôtre and all those names that uh, made the, the cuisine, the cuisine française what it is, you know, it uh, was a phenomenal moment, you know, uh, telling me the story of uh, Pierre Troigros going in an extremely uh, wealthy family to do a special dinner, waking up in the morning, being extremely sad, and the, the woman that was hosting him and, uh, and Bocuse was kind of panicked. She said, what's happening, Monsieur Troigros? And he looked at her and said, well, you know, I'm very sad because uh, don't worry about it. And she said, no, no, I do worry. He said, well, you know, I, I cannot find my toothbrush. And she was like, my God, toothbrush? We, we, I have hundreds of toothbrushes. I, mean, I give you one. He said, no, 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 no. He said, you don't understand. This one was very special. And he was like, what do you mean it's special? Well, that was my grandmother's toothbrush. <laughs> we passed it from one to the other in the family, and I don't know what I did with it. Then she was just like, those French? <laughs> That's real? They, they just use one toothbrush during their life? Whatever. So, I mean, that was a kind of, uh, of things they were constantly doing to people, being so highly regarded, you know, and respected, but not taking themselves seriously. And personally, I love that, okay? I don't think we should never take ourselves seriously. So, uh, that brings me to the next one. We did André Dagen. André Dagen was a chef from the south of France, from Auch. Uh, not really known in USA, his daughter is more known, is Ariane Dagan from D'Artagnan in New York. She owns a company who does, you know, uh, foie gras and these kind of things, which actually I have some foie gras for you. I know it's uh, always delicate to serve foie gras for some people, but I decided to do it. It's French today. Uh, and also what I want to say, I brought some sample and I want to tell you, it's probably the best food in this place today. Okay, then enjoy it. <laughs> Um, and after Dagen, we did uh, Jacques Pepin. We, did, uh, we had a dinner with Jacques Pepin also, it was really fun. Uh, very, very nice person. Then uh, that was uh, my thing with, uh, with Bistro 110. Uh, then Bistro 110 decided to uh, close. The company sold to another company uh, based in Great Britain, you know, and uh, they decided to change the whole thing. They did, and uh, I did also. That's when I decided to go and to open uh, Chez Moi. 
uh, in Lincoln Park. Then Chemois uh, uh, means my house. And uh, the, the reason I decided to name it Chemois, it's because that was the first time really that uh, after working for everybody else, I finally work for myself, <laughs> you know, and it's a good feeling. Uh, today, Chemois, it's about... Uh, we have about 90 seats and it's about 25 employees, you know, and I think uh, when I look behind on my career, I think, you know, when people ask me, okay, what, what make you happy or what? For me, the thing I'm the proudest is to think that since I started to work, I have always been able to generate, generate work for other people. So I have... I can say today that uh, I made hundreds of people working and being able to provide for their family, you know, with all the restaurants where I've been. And uh, uh, this is the thing that make me happy. You know, after that, everything else, you know, uh, like I say, who care? You know, uh, do I have the best onion soup in the world? I have a very good onion soup, okay? <laughs> I mean, uh, does it need to be the best? Well, I mean, for certain people, it will be, you know. The... But that's where I will come after to the social media. Mm. Uh, <laughs> the, yes. <laughs> the, the other thing I want to say that uh, today on my career, you know what I learned? Um, and my job has changed. You know, you, you start as a cook, you become, I mean, you always are a cook, but my, um, my amplitude of work today is different as a restaurateur. You know, you have to look at every different aspect. And... Um, like I said earlier, since I like to lead by example, today um, my job is not just to, um, to look at the kitchen, but is to make sure that I can do everything I ask to my employees. Meaning that if it's to clean the bathroom, if it's to be behind the bar, I'm not the best bartender, I'm not really good with mixing drinks, but I mean, if I have to, I do it. Uh, serving the customer, etc. It's for me, it's something that I've been lucky to cover everything, you know. But today, a chef, it's also an accountant, is a buyer, is a social media person, is uh, somebody we need to transform the food, is also somebody we need to know how to cost it out. Uh, you have to deal with the landlord, you have to know the law, you have to know the, you know, all the, the, the then it's really a lot of different hats, okay? You, you have to wear, maybe too many, that's why um, I lost my hair. But um, the uh, other challenge after when, um, uh, well, the one thing I didn't mention, which is important, when I arrived in USA, I met my wife and we had kids. Now, listen to that. For a father that is um, a chef, I had two kids, and it's very rare, apparently, at the time. Two kids that were born with, guess what, food allergies. <laughs> yes, then uh, big wake-up call. And I'm glad, I'm glad because uh, it's been, my son is 19, my daughter is 17. Then 19 years ago, I faced this challenge. And you know, at the time, I don't know you guys, but me, when I was at school, the kid with a food allergy, you might have one you know, in a classroom of, uh, you know, of uh, hundreds. Now, you have one that is not allergic to something, okay? <laughs> so, uh, so I learned very quickly, and I was kind of, uh, uh, you know, putting in a position where, you know, becoming one of those chefs when you had a ticket, you know, saying, okay, be careful, chef, uh, table 25, you have a food allergy, and I was like, oh, my God, why well, they come to a restaurant? You know, they cannot stay in a house. And all the student, I became the guy was... Well, yeah, no, those guys, they also have the right to go out, you know, they need to be able to enjoy, they need to socialize, and what can I do 
now in my restaurant to make sure that those people are going to be able to enjoy their life also and being safe. So that changed completely the approach, knowing all the ingredients, you know, knowing uh, what goes in the recipe, perfectly training your people to know what goes in the recipe. And that's a different challenge, believe me. Um, you know, when I, I have an employee asking me one time, what kind of milk is made, the, the, the goat cheese is made with? It's like, mm, I don't know, think about it, you know, I mean, uh, it's a... <laughs> I don't know, think then, you know, when you have to deal with people like that, trying to explain them now about the danger of cross-contamination of a product with another, believe me, it's a challenge. So uh, uh, I learned about that. I learned how to make crepes without eggs. Yes, it's possible, you know, try it. You replace eggs with uh, applesauce. Believe it or not, it works, okay? Um, it's not good, but it works. <laughs> 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 but it works. And uh, the reason I did that was because my daughter, at the time, before she was seven years old, was allergic to eggs. Well, guess what? When it's a chandelier, you know, and uh, all the, the Mardi Gras kids at school, they have crepes. My daughter was a kid who didn't have the crepes. And I was just like, okay, how can I do something for her to go to school to have her crepes and to look like everybody else? And that's when I came. Don't ask me why and how. I don't know. I tried things I had, and this worked. It looks like... Uh, plastic frisbee kind of, you know, uh, but she didn't know and she was happy because she had the crepes to eat with all of her, her friends at the table at the same time. That was the point, you know. Um, then you, you, you have to think differently and that's when I learned also that um, when you are a chef, when you are a restaurateur, you have to really open up your mind and you have to be careful with all of that because as much as I say to my employee, what we do, we are giving happiness to people for a cert certain period of time is also a super high responsibility. Because what we do, we are, the people are not just going to, you know, it's not like an airspray or soap. No, that's something they're going to put inside of their body. And that can have some serious reaction, you know. So training the people, talking to them, I'm pretty proud to say that uh, at Levy Restaurant, which was a huge company and still a huge company, I'm the one who started them to, be, to have the awareness of the food allergy. I started the program with them. Now, if you go over there and the lettuce restaurant the same, if you say that you have a kid or somebody with a food allergy, I'm telling you, it's red flag right away. The person, the manager, the server, they're going to know what you're talking about and they're going to make sure they go through all the steps, you know, uh, which... Even with that, you know, you still have risk. And uh, the thing that makes me really upset is when I have to deal with grown-ups that have, for example, peanut allergy, which is a very serious one, one of my kids, actually. And uh, you look at them and you, they come to your restaurant and say, yeah, you know, okay, be careful, dude, I have peanut allergy. And uh, my response to them is, say, oh, I'm sure you have your, your EpiPen with you, you know? And they look at me and say, oh, no, I never carry it. Well, you know, okay, then don't ask me to be responsible for you. Okay, there is, there is a time, po a point where my responsibility can go s to a certain level. You know, if you don't do what you need for yourself, I don't ask me to do it. I, I think that's too much now. That's my, I, I will be careful, obviously. I'm not going to put peanuts in this plate just to, uh, you know, a joke. But uh, the, the next thing, you know, w was um, also a different uh, a thing for me to, uh, to see. It's so when we start to talk about social media, if you look around, all of those things, how they became important, you know, for people. And they definitely select the restaurant where they go based on those kind of things, you know. Um, 
Today, celiac, I don't know if you heard about celiac, you know, gluten allergy. The celiac, I talked to, with the, uh, the doctor of my kids actually taking care of all of that. Celiac is an extremely rare uh, physical condition, okay? The inside of your stomach has to be Breathe a certain way. I'm not a doctor, then I, I don't want to, you know. But uh, I, apparently, it's less than 1% of the population that really have celiac. The people who really have celiac, apparently, when they get in, uh, in pain, it's absolutely terrible. It's a very painful situation. What we see today in the restaurant is that a lot of people that might decide to do a gluten-free diet, which I have absolutely no problem with that, have a tendency to say that they have celiac disease, you know? And just to scare us a little bit more, like that we are going to be even more careful. I think, for me anyway, on my restaurant, the way I work is we treat everybody as a minute they say they have a celiac, garlic, you know? And most of the time, garlic is on the ladies' side when they are on the first date. I don't know why they have garlic allergies. <laughs> but <laughs> I really don't know why it's weird. But um, on the second day, they don't care anymore. They eat escargot with garlic. But um, the, the thing is, um, we treat them all the same way. Now, the sad part is because we never really know what we deal with, you know, we, we never know really what the person is going to be reacting. It creates a huge situation in the kitchen, believe me, because we have to change uh, cutting board, knives, uh, making sure that we put gloves, which one thing I learned one day, I made the mistake, you know, I, uh, uh, I use the gloves we had in the, in the restaurant, they were latex gloves. Well, guess what? People have reaction to latex. Then I end up having a customer that I was thinking doing good for him, and I end up having a customer with his lips like, like that. Because uh, the reaction on the latex apparently was making him swell his, uh, his lip like crazy. And, uh, and this guy was upset with me, and I'm just like, I don't know what happened. I'm telling you, they, I, I'd be very careful. And we find out it was the gloves. And now, you know, we have to buy vinyl-based gloves, etc., etc. So no more latex gloves, etc. And I'm sure there will be something else soon, you know, because the way we go, when we try to fight, you know, one side, something else is going to appear, and you always have an outbreak, etc. Then for a restaurateur, believe me, it's super scary. And also, uh, because I learned that even when you do super, you are very careful. First of all, you can never prevent it 100%. But if you make one mistake, the next day on the social media, guess what you see? And this is very frustrating because, and I understand I'm the first one, believe me, with two kids with deadly peanut allergy, I completely understand better than anybody, you know, I think. But mistake can happen. And and when I see sometimes that we get somebody, one person upset on the thousand of cover we serve by being super careful and, and we had a, an accident, it, that doesn't make me happy. And uh, I understand it. I never respond to that because, I'm, I mean, I, I take care of the customer, making sure that everything is well. But it's very frustrating for a chef. And what I, what I did, because uh, I thought it was funny, when I started in the business, you know, the tickets, when people order food, Tickets were pretty simple, you know, uh, one Côte de Boeuf, uh, one, uh, one Salmon, one Dover Sole, one uh, Braised Lamb, okay, and that's what it was. Also, what I learned in USA is that people have a tendency to like to create their own menus, you know, the new, us, 
Uh, the chef, we spend hours trying to figure out, you know, the cost, the ingredients, the way it's going to work based on the, the station, making sure that the guy on the grill has the ingredients, the guy on the saute, etc. Then, you know, everything is, uh, is well thought. And then the people have a tendency to do whatever they want. Uh, I have a great uh, thing that happened at Bistro One Ten where the customer comes and he was, okay, I want this sandwich, but I don't want this bread. I want you to remove this salad. I want this kind of sauce. I want etc. Okay, fine, then. Again, Bistro, it's a busy restaurant. Okay? I mean, it used to be super crazy. So here we are, receive these tickets, you know, super long for one person. Oh my God, you have to stop everything and go and try to figure it out. We do it as much as well as we could. We serve it, you know, it was not really something for me appetizing, but you know. And uh, serve it to the customer. The customer called the manager, and I think she had the best response. The guy went, you know, he said, I have to tell you, this is not good. And she looked at him and she said, well, that's why we don't have it on the menu. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. <laughs> so what, what I'm trying to say here is that I believe today, restaurateur, and definitely more than ever, people are making super big effort to please their customer. I don't know any of my colleagues today that's going to say, nope, I'm going to do everything I can to make my customer upset. You know, that's, that doesn't exist, okay? The, it's a very competitive business, and today we have to be careful and we have to be really open-minded to every guest that's come to the restaurant. And, uh, and when I see the amount of effort we ask to our employee and to ourselves, and just because we have one person upset, they're going to go and really sometimes really trash us, you know, and, uh, and I'm not talking about my experience. If you look on my reviews, please feel free. Uh, we have very good reviews uh, most of the time, you know, but you, you know, you always have one person that you're not going to please. C'est la vie. But today, I want to show you, this is the kind of ticket we get in the kitchen. And you remember I tell you before, like when I was 14 years old, the tickets were like four lines for four items. I took a roll today and I said, well, Four, four people, Samar chef, okay? One onion soup, onion on the side, extra broth, no bread, cheese, no fat, extra crispy. <laughs> you on charge, Polo. Good luck. One plant-based cassoulet, no meat, extra raw broccoli, sub bean, no le by lentils, side of quinoa. Okay, without asking you if you have quinoa in the restaurant, you know? So you assume that. One steak sandwich, gluten allergy, subbread by grilled portobello mushroom, without asking you if you have that. One seafood stew allergy to, to shellfish, sub, sub shrimp, mussel and scallop by tuna, salmon and trout, no cream, okay? Three flourless chocolate cake, dairy allergy, not allergy. Four iceberg, ice on the side. You know what is an iceberg? It's a glass of water with, uh, <laughs> with ice. So, and usually the cherry on the pie is, uh, you know, they, uh, most people, they say, oh, you know, I cannot have cream again. And then one creme brulee with four spoon. I love that. Um, so what I'm trying to say, uh, it's, it's kind of a joke, obviously, and I exaggerate. But that's a kind of challenge we go through, you know, and, uh, and during the regular service, and you have these kind of things. And most of the time, our waiters are making mistakes when they are taking those orders because it's confusing. Then that becomes a nightmare for, every, for everybody. But... Uh, the, I'm, I'm trying to read my notes here and make sure I don't forget anything. The, the funny thing on that is, uh, is because even with all those challenges and even with all those difficult tasks, 
I really think that most of the restaurants today, they accomplish a very good job. And, uh, you know, it's the same when... Uh, um, when we get older, we don't eat the same. You know, I know I'm a big guy, but I eat probably half of what I used to eat when I was 20 years old. Believe me, you prefer to have me in your house now than when I was 20 years old. Uh, <laughs> it will be way cheaper. Uh, and it's, it's normal. The evolution and the way we want to, uh, you know, uh, enjoying the restaurant, etc. It's absolutely uh, something normal. The, the social media today are super important for the restaurant business. Why? Because if you look at all the printed publications, they have a tendency to disappear, okay? Uh, I remember, you know, uh, Chicago Tribune, Chicago uh, Magazine and all of that, you know, doing the reviews and, and all of those now, they are pretty much all online. For me, I think the, the sad part about that is because it's really targeting a very narrow clientele. You know, I was reading that today, 2.7 billion people are connected to social media. 80% of those are the 19 to 25 years old. Well, do you really think that the 19 to 25 years old are the people that are going to come to eat, uh, I don't know, a braised lamb shank and uh, some uh, lentil salad? And uh, No, that's not the clients. So um, this is very difficult because as a restaurant today, if we are not visible on social media, uh, we don't exist. We don't exist, okay? Because, uh, the, like I said, the printing publication disappears. Nobody really reads anymore. You know, people want to see a picture, want to see a video. It's way easier. They don't have to think. Um, and if we don't do that, the brand of the restaurant and the, um, the number of customers we reach will be way too slow for us to be able to survive. So the thing I don't like about social media, and I learned it with a thing like uh, Yelp, okay, when you go on Yelp reviews and all of that, uh, it's, maybe it sounds like if it's free, but believe, believe me, we have to pay. The restaurant pay. We pay to be on Yelp. And uh, there is also one thing that I really don't like about that is because as long as you pay, they're going to show good reviews. If you don't pay, like a mystery, you're going to start to see that you start to have way more, uh, bad reviews. You know, you're going to have like two and a half stars, three stars, you know, on, on five. Then it's kind of a, a system where I am very uncomfortable with it, but I mean, I have no power over it. But that's what the, the kind of things they are doing. You know, then it's a, a very disturbing and very fake system. But again, it's so convenient, it's so easy. You know those millennials, they are, the, they are the, the new generation of everything immediately. I remember when I was a kid, if I didn't know a word in French, guess what was my dad's answer? Take the dictionary and look at it, you know? And then already for me to figure out that this, the word will start with an M, I have to find M first, you know, in the dictionary. And then you have to go through the entire thing, etc. Today, you know what? <laughs> boom, 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 boom. Wikipedia, which you know, it's another aberration. I don't know if you try that. You know, we did it one time as a group. You know, we put we went to Napoleon. You know, on uh, on Wikipedia. And do you know that you can change things in Wikipedia? Then if you put that Napoleon was born in Central Africa, you know, I mean, if they don't really look at it, you have a chance that the next day you're going to see on Wikipedia that Napoleon was born in Central Africa. You know, which I have nothing against it, but I mean, you know, historically, it's not really the fact, you know. So the, the danger for that for me is that those kids, and I see it on my level with my kids, 
they take that like truth. They look at all those information like, and I believe us as parents, okay, and I don't care if you are in the restaurant business, in the plumbing business, but we have to constantly remind them, okay, guys, you know what? No, double check, triple check, go after it. But they are kind of lazy. They don't want to double check, you know? They, they don't want to make sure that what they see, it's, re it's fact or it's just a f what a crazy guy called the fake news, you know? But <laughs> there is definitely a lot of fake news, you know, on the, on the things. And... Um, it's the same in the restaurant industry. So the way I'm looking at the, the social media, um, first of all, I had to learn by myself because at the time when I went to school, nobody talked about it. Computer system is the same, nobody. I never saw a computer, you know, until uh, way later in my career. So we, my generation of chefs, we had to do this switch by ourselves with no support, with no help of anybody. And uh, sometimes, you know, very frustrating because of, I have kind of a very good skill. Usually when I touch a computer, the next day is dead. You know, then uh, I am really not a computer friendly. That's why I don't do a PowerPoint. I don't, no, no, I do it the, the, I do it the way it should be done. <laughs> Talking to you, looking at you in the eyes, you know, I mean, not, not through a skin and a, a screen and all of that. The, the, the other vicious aspect of the social media, and that's for me also very important, I almost want to call it anti-social media because it completely cuts the relationship between people. You know, whether you like my onion soup or don't like it, just tell me. Let's talk about it. I mean, you know, it's fine. I'm going to make mistakes. You might not like the way I put the cheese on it. You might not like the broth. It might be too salty. It might not be enough, etc. But, you know... When, what I see sometimes, and with, with the younger generation, you know, you go to the table, and I, I really go to see my people, you know. You go to the table, and, oh, yes, everything is fantastic, everything is great, everything is fantastic. Two hours later, they go home, and you look at the review, and you're just like, oh, my God, what, what I did to those people, you know. I mean, I talked to them, and how come they didn't say that to me, you know, or why we... We could not figure that out, you know, looking at each other, talk, being human, you know, instead of being those kind of things and, uh, you know, behind, uh, behind the screen. It's, the reason of that is because it's so easy. It is so easy when you, you have nobody to respond to you, to explain you or to try to uh, tell you, you know, I'm sorry my union soup is not what you like, but, you know, there is... We sell thousands of it and people love it. So maybe next time, you know, let me know and I can prep it differently for you. You know, I can have a different batch with less onion, with more, whatever it is. But let's figure it out together. Then it become almost impossible. And at first, when I was actually with Livy and the social media was starting to, uh, to uh, be important in our industry, we decided with the marketing department, and you know, that's a, that's a big deal over there, we decided not to respond to any of those uh, good or bad reviews because we, we say, okay, if we start to respond to it, we're going to, have to need to pay somebody to be there 24-7, you know? I mean, that's a, it's a full-time job. And also because what we realize is people like to kind of create, to escalate, you know, escalate this kind of uh, tension, you know, that you're going to respond, you're going to be camping on your position, the customer or the person across is going to camp on his or her position, and you start to realize that you're becoming pretty aggressive to each other because it's so easy, you know, it's so easy to uh, scream to each other by putting, you know, a uh, uh, big letter using red and green, etc. But it's way more complicated when you talk as civilized people in the eyes of each other, you know. And uh, so uh, today, uh, 
I, I had, obviously, I have a Facebook account, okay? I wanted to remove my personal Facebook account. And then I received a nice message to Facebook to say, okay, you know, you cannot have a professional Facebook if you don't have a personal Facebook. I was like, really? I mean, what that about, you know? And that's the way they get more people. And because if you want to have a professional, uh, a job Facebook account, you need to have a personal profile also. Then all of these kind of things, you know, as much as I love technology, as much, you know, now these things became, you know, something that uh, I cannot do without. Um, we always have to remember that there is definitely a vicious aspect of all of those kind of things, you know. And, uh, you know, when people talk about black mirror, this is what is a black mirror, you know. That's what it is. So look in it and uh, you see what, uh, <laughs> what you want to see in it. So uh, the, uh, the positive aspect, like I say, it definitely creates um, a quick response to the customer. I must say it's cheap for us to, uh, to use social media because it's really not uh, um, expensive compared to what, to you, what used to be printing, you know, if you want a quarter page or a half page in a magazine that nobody cares, you know, and, uh, and also because it helps us also to uh, target our customer better. Then, you know, we have a bunch of people that uh, come to the restaurant, they, they want to be part of what we do, then we know that those people are going to be responsive, you know, when, when we send them a message, they're going to look at it, you know, and uh, uh, then creating a brand um, but I still believe that for us today, if we are successful on the social media aspect, it's also because, and if you ever come to Chemois, I hope that will be the, the case for your experience, um, I created a team of people that's going to talk to you. You're not just going to be uh, another guy who came in, you know, having, a, again, I'm going to say the onion soup and, uh, <laughs> and get out of there. So um, I, for me, the communication as much as it's important on the, all those social things, it's still super important to talk to each other. <laughs> and uh, uh, that nothing can replace, you know, I have a manager that uh, actually my, uh, my GM is a guy that used to work at Spiaggia for 15 years. And uh, between the two of us, we have 30 years of corporate experience, <laughs> you know, uh, which is, we know the good and we know the bad about, uh, about it, which is really, uh, really cool. And, um, so, Today, if uh, you know, sometimes I, I know it's annoying for you guys because you receive a lot of those uh, uh, pictures, you receive a lot of, hey, look what's happening at Chemois this week, hey, look what's happening at Chemois today, hey, look what's happening at Chemois yesterday, hey, look, you know, and people want their like, 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 you know, all the time. Um, sorry for that. I don't think we are too aggressive on that by sending too many messages, but sadly, it became today on the technology we have something that we cannot do without. So uh, uh, think about when you receive one, think about the work behind it, just have a little look for a few seconds and then delete it if you don't like it. But I mean, that's, uh, uh, it's definitely because there is a mind process and there is a business need behind all of those uh, social media. Um, I think that's it for me. <laughs> and if you have any question, I would love to, uh, to answer, uh, answer them to respond to you. <laughs> yes, Scott is coming. <laughs> Yes. Oh, the, food, the food I brought you, there is some macarons, there is some foie gras, there is some country-style pâté, and there is a gâteau breton. And I choose those because uh, those are really, obviously, French. Uh, gâteau breton is a little thing I really enjoy because that's a recipe I put together after a trip with my parents and kids in Brittany. And they do, you know, in, uh, in Brittany, they, do the, uh, they use sea salt in everything because it used to be the, 
the garde-manger for the king, you know, then they didn't have to pay la gabelle, they didn't pay the tax on salt at the time because they were using salt to preserve the food to bring to Paris. Then the king gave them a break with the, with the gabelle, so they used salt in butter, in candies, and in pastries, and the Gâteau Breton is a version of a restaurant just from the Galette Breton, which is a little dry cookie with uh, sea salt. Please. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> That was, that was a delicious talk, and we're going to get to questions in a second. While, while Chef Dominique was talking, uh, about, and especially about uh, Chef Joel Robichon speak, being at his restaurant, you know, again, the most revered chef in the world, I remember uh, at that event, I went up to Mayor Daly, and I said, here we are. Chicago is the hog butcher to the world. We're known for our pizzas and our hot dogs. And yet you bring this fancy French chef to Chicago to cook for this revered crowd. I said, isn't, isn't that going to ruin our reputation? And, and he, said, he said, no, no, Robichon is the Michael Jordan of the kitchen, and Chicago's ready for him. So, and, and this is one of the reasons we're ready for this kind of food today. He's helped pioneer, making us one of the world's food capitals. So, thank you. Oh, thank you. And, and, and questions, both. Um, okay. Yeah, any question? Yep. Uh, I definitely I hire one of those millennials, <laughs> and uh, she's a, she's a wonderful young lady, and she uh, she put back actually even our website, you know, because my website was according to her kind of old, you know, then uh, it looks good to me, but you know, she said it was time for uh, an update, and uh, they have a different eye, you know, I mean those uh, those kids. I've been trained for that, and they, they see things that for, for me and maybe for us, you know, not make a big difference, but they know. And also, um, the other thing I learned is, uh, you know, we have to have some key words, you know, when people are looking for, uh, again, uh, creme brulee, onion soup, steak au poivre, you know, those words are going to be recognized by the, by the server, and by the number of people clicking on those words, you're going to have your your place on the, the, the list of uh, the restaurant appearing on the on the page of the web on the when you do a research are going to be in a better place than if you don't have those kind of things and I don't really know about the technique thing but I know those things are super important and I have a, I think she's 23 years old and it's, she's perfect for that <laughs> and she does all my social media and, uh, and definitely overview all the when we have a computer problem when we have a, a, anything that I hate to deal with then uh, you know I think today the key also for um, for us to be successful is to be able to surround ourselves with the right people, you know, and uh, uh, I keep saying that to my uh, employee, if everybody here was exactly like me, there would be way too many of me. Though I, I need people that are complementary. They're going to complete what, where I'm not good. I need to know it and to put somebody who's going to be better. You know, I think that's, uh, that's really what I'm trying to do. And for that, Libby is uh, doing very good so far. <laughs> Well, that's a, that's a, yeah, that's a very good question. I think to the, yes, the the question is uh, on the reviews. When we do the, the review, what is uh, you know how much it's about food or about service or about the atmosphere? Well, if you read at the the reviews today, um, I will say that people are really taking the entire experience. You know, it used to be where you go to a restaurant because of the food. You used to go to a restaurant because of the chef. You used to go to a restaurant because there is this special wine over there or what that you don't find. I think today 
the, and, and also when I arrived like 20 years ago, the restaurant was really a place where people used to go to refill an energy and get out of there as soon as possible to go to their next task, you know, either if it's shopping, movie, theater, etc. Today, the restaurant is the experience. People go out for the restaurant. Then they're going to spend two hours, two and a half hours. It depends on, uh, you know, the, the, the number of uh, people. Um, but it's really the, the, um, the entity that is review, you know, and, uh, and people will not hesitate, you know. And uh, the, the, for me, few things that are always uh, interesting on that when I see uh, social media, I, I'm more looking at the trend. You know, if, uh, if I see uh, two or three reviews with the same item or the same attitude from a waiter that is mentioned, you know, two or three times, then I'm looking at it and say, okay, I have an issue here because it's not one person. If you, like I said to, uh, earlier, you sell 1,000 onion soup and you have one person that say you didn't like it, you say, okay, not that is not important, but it might, that might not be the taste of the person. You know, it might have been uh, something was a little bit, uh, but if I see I don't like the onion soup one, two, three, four times, then I bet, bet you that I'm going to go to check right away what's going on with my onion soup, you know. And uh, uh, then it's also a positive tool on that matter because it forces us to, to look and to rectify and to change to, to get better if we have to, you know, that's a, that's a very good thing. But today, yeah, it's about everything. Voilà. <laughs> well, okay. Then the question is to know if what we did with all the extra caviar. Okay. No, we didn't have any extra caviar because the three kilo went back to Petrosian. Then I had seven kilo. But now the one thing you have to know is uh, um, Guijob. Guijob was, uh, came with Robuchon. And Guijob was a producer. It was a TV producer. Then uh, I did actually the TV show with Robuchon in Paris for a week. I was with a uh, cuisine comme un grand chef. It was a five minute TV show every day uh, of the week, just around 12 noon. And uh, then we recorded in Paris and Guijot was a producer for this TV show. Um, the, uh, the funny thing is uh, Guijot was a guy that was probably my weight, but he was like that. Okay. So he was like, uh, I think like a ball, we can say that. Uh, very nice person, but the, the thing that was amazing to me is um, I have never seen somebody eating caviar the way Gijob was eating caviar. Uh, and uh, so we didn't have any leftover because I think Gijob did a very good job to make sure there will not be any. <laughs> that was, yeah. Gijob was a customer of Joël Robuchon at, uh, in Paris. And um, we used to have a canette roti. You know, it's a duck that is a rotisserie, you know, vertical cooking. And uh, uh, what, we do, what we do also in the lèche frit, you know, the lèche frit, lèche frit is uh, the container under the rotisserie where all the grease drip. And usually we used to cook the, the turnips, you know, that was going with a, with a duck in this kind of, in the lèche frit. And uh, Guijot was uh, the only customer that I knew that was going there for lunch to have a duck and for himself and to go back at night and have another duck. Then somebody who can eat two ducks on a day, uh, I don't want to be a duck next to him. <laughs> yes? Um, well, the question is to know if the presence of the chef on the dining room has an influence on the, the frequency of the, yeah. Uh, I really think so. You know, I really think that, uh, and I, I can see, you know, uh, I've been lucky again to, to do that for 40 years, and you know, you need to have a, a little bit of 
psychology, you know, when you approach a table, you, you, there is some people you can feel, you know, you, you can feel that they don't want to talk to you. And there is some people that really want you to sit down with them, you know, then, uh, uh, and sometimes it can be for a lot of different reasons. Some people can be here to talk business. Some people can be here to talk, uh, you know, private things. Um, but when you get that, it never hurt to go to say hi, to talk to the people, check after you serve them. And if you, again, if you go on, the, on our social media, you will see uh, often that uh, we have a reference to of the chef being on the dining room, talking to us, you know, and uh, uh, fixing the problem. I think that's also important. It's never very pleasant, but when somebody doesn't like their food, it's easy to send the waiter and say, okay, dude, you go take care of it, you know. It's way more difficult to go and to talk to the people because, you know, it's, it's not the most pleasant experience in your life, you know, but also by going through that, you be careful that they're going to like it, you know, because you don't want to go there too often. But um, to have the contact with the, the people, for me, it's, it's very important. Even at Bistro 110, and believe me, there was not an easy place to be on the floor because this place was all the time. I mean, uh, like we say, we used to do, I say, we used to do seven or 800 people average a day, but we were going up to 1800 people a day and all a la carte. Okay. And, uh, you know, when you mention the flavor, it's because we had a wood burning oven. We had things that today would be forbidden anyway. That's very difficult with a city to have these kind of, uh, of things. Uh, but talking to the customer, even on those restaurants with big volume, have an impact, a positive impact on the, on the restaurant, I believe so. And same with the general manager, going there and checking for the wine and bringing the knowledge, definitely an impact. Yep. Just <laughs> Sorry. Speaking for voilà. <laughs> No, I think it's a, you got to be visible. You know, when, uh, sadly, you know, I overview also another restaurant in the south of Chicago in Homewood. Okay, I have a place, it's a, it's a boutique hotel called, uh, uh, the hotel is called La Banque and the restaurant is called La Voute. It's in Homewood, Flossmo over there. And um, I landed over there a little bit by accident. Then sometimes I'm just feel guilty because I would like to be there more than I am. I cannot be in both places, you know, at the same time. But, uh, but I think, uh, you know, these kind of little things, I believe it's, uh, it's really, uh, really important. And uh, um, today also, you know, people don't necessarily know much about wine. Then just if they don't know, that's fine. Give them a little taste of it, you know, and uh, they might say, oh, I don't like the Pinot Noir. You know, I prefer something lighter or something. But uh, yeah, I think the, the contact will definitely uh, never be replaced by, uh, by that. That's for sure. <laughs> yes. Well, the question is to know if we have a, a good product, basically, and uh, good quality. Um, Beef in Chicago has never been a problem. I think the quality of the meat, you know, it's uh, after that we can discuss of what they put in it, which for me, that's a different issue, you know, uh, uh, all the, the antibiotics and things like that. But the quality, the quality of the beef usually is, is really good. I believe in the past 10 years, quality of produce have increased tremendously. I mean, uh, you know, I remember like uh, 20 years ago, uh, trying to explain uh, to, to what was a zucchini to some to some of my purveyor was just like okay come on dude I mean you know it's just a zucchini you know and they, some of them didn't know now look at what happened in uh, even in the supermarket if you go to a uh, Mariano's to a uh, Jewel to I mean look at the the produce selection we have today in uh, in this uh, in this country now um, the quality 
can still improve. And if you go in Europe, if you go in Italy, if you go in Spain, if you go in France, and you go on the market, you buy a tomato, the only thing you need is a tomato, olive oil, maybe some basil, and that's it. The quality of tomatoes here are terrible. Okay, and uh, uh, I was always wondering why why we cannot have good tomatoes. And I went with one of my purveyors one time, and he showed me the way they work, the way they proceed. Basically, for this company, I don't know, uh, I'm not going to give any name, but what they do, they bring tomatoes, green tomatoes, on wood box, and they have those huge coolers, okay? And each one has a different gas they're going to put in there, you know, to ripe those tomatoes super fast. So you start with a, a walking cooler with a green tomato for a couple of days, and they put some sort of, I don't know what, in the air. They take it out of the, the, you know, the speed rack, put it on the next one, put something else, and in about a week, you're going to have tomatoes that are super ripe. I mean, they are very red. Problem, they have absolutely no flavor, you know? And uh, so, and even sometimes if you go to a, uh, to a farmer's market, it's very hard to, I mean, try it, make the experience, you know, buy just a tomato and just eat it, just, you know, chew on it, and you're going to see the flavor is pretty bland. Do that in uh, Italy, Spain, uh, France, Morocco, I mean, all the Mediterranean borders of the countries, and just eat a tomato. You will understand what I'm talking about. Then definitely they still have a margin to improve this, you know, but I really think we are in the right direction, absolutely. <laughs> well, look at me, you need to have all of them. I mean, that's... A <laughs> no, wait, I, this question, okay, that's, that's a good question because I get this question very often. It's so difficult to choose for someone, okay? I mean, uh, everybody has different taste, you know, then, uh, uh, and for me also, it depends on the moment. Sometimes I'm going to feel like I want to eat, uh, right now I'm doing a seafood stew at the restaurant, you know, and uh, I don't call it a bouillabaisse because for me, bouillabaisse is kind of a trademark, kind of, you know, it's certain fish that you need to have to be, to pull a bouillabaisse. Then I'm doing a fish stew. It doesn't sound as romantic, but it's, I feel more honest to my customer by saying it's a fish too. And uh, right now, you know, I feel like this kind of thing, you know, like a light broth and with the weather changing, you know, a, a light uh, lobster broth with, a, you know, a little bit of salmon, scallop and a, a sea bass, etc. You know, that's the kind of things I will feel today. So for me to choose for you, uh, it's, it's very difficult, but uh, I love I love the cassoulet we do, you know, because also it's, uh, it's a regional. If you look at my menu, I purposely did it this way. It's not one region of France. It's really a little bit of everywhere, you know, because uh, you have things from the southwest. You have things like uh, cassoulet, it's uh, Castelnaudary. Uh, the fish too will be more like uh, Mediterranean, you know. I have things like the escargot, which is more Bourgogne. Then uh, it goes a little bit of or, or everywhere. And that's also to invite the customer not to come once, but to come two or three times to try different regions, you know. <laughs> sure. Well, well, what I do, I mean, uh, I have a, I'm fortunate to have a lot of regular customers, you know. And uh, again, by creating this relation, not only through uh, social media, but uh, more on a one-on-one -on -one person, you know. Uh, when people ask me, oh my God, you know, uh, how come you don't have this dish on the menu anymore, you know. Or, uh, I'm just looking at them and say, listen, this is my number. I gave my personal number. I don't care. I say, you call me. Uh, you know, uh, two, three days in advance in function of what it is. You tell me how many people, and I will have that for you. It, matter of fact, I have, tonight, it's happening. I have a, a customer of Bistro 110, actually, that uh, called the day before yesterday, and uh, we uh, we just run a, a promotion week uh, three weeks ago with the chicken and morel, the Paul Bocuse. And they asked, okay, we're coming tonight. 
can you can we have the chicken and morel dish? And my response was absolutely. Then right now we are at the minute we are talking. Okay, we have I have a guy doing the the, the morel sauce for those uh, for those people. Then uh, for me again this uh, and through social media or through just a regular contact, I think it's very important to be able to respond to this kind of demand and. Uh, um, because that's also a way to uh, to keep your clientele and uh, and the people are going to say okay this is not a chain restaurant you know it's a it's a small uh, privately owned restaurant which also it's very important uh, today as independent we are fighting through all those chains you know and uh, I, the best thing we can do is to have you to support those little independent restaurants. I'm not just talking about me, but all of them, because it's becoming more and more difficult. Why? Because all the laws and legislation are made for those big groups that have the power to, uh, to go through that. We don't. You know, we, we support it. We, we, we take it, you know, and we deal with it. And I believe those little independent restaurants, uh, when I look at those uh, information about social media, what was interesting, 52% of the corporation and the big groups are using social media, okay? Only 52%. 77% of the independent restaurants are using social media today. And the reason of that, what I'm thinking, is because those big companies, like I mentioned before, they have such a powerful marketing and uh, machine behind them. You know, like if you look at, again, Lettuce and Levy, they, they have so, many, so much power that they can do it internally. For us, as an independent, we need those little social media to exist. And that's uh, and to be visible. Then, when people request something special, we do it. And for me, it's more. It's about uh, not just because of food allergy, but also for special diets, for special needs. For it can be anything, you know. Uh, obviously, if somebody asks me to make sushi, I will say, well, it's not really what I do, you know. I'm sorry, but there is enough sushi place around Chicago. But we definitely try to accommodate as much as we can. Yeah. The only thing I will say on that, you know, pushing for more organic food, the only thing that can play against organic food is the people that produce it if they lie to the public. I think that's the danger. The danger is that when you buy organic, it got to be 100% organic. I have no problem today to pay 10%, 20%, 30% more as long as I am sure and I have the guarantee that the food I buy is really organic. And, you know, I think the, the bigger danger for organic food is organic food. They have to be very careful. By, uh, and, you know, when you, when you start to, to deepen and to dig a little bit into those kind of things, you realize that a lot of those are using that just for a marketing purpose. And, uh, and that's, I think, it's absolutely unfair. You know, I don't say all of them, okay? Uh, there is some people that are doing a very good job. Be careful. I mean, I'm not sure. But there is some people that are not honest on this thing. And that can play a very bad, uh, uh, have a bad influence on the organic food. Nope. <laughs> People ask me, and uh, um, that, that was uh, also on, uh, on the table. And, you know, I have a friend. She, I don't know if you know this little boutique on, uh, on Halstead. It's called uh, Read It and Eat. It's a beautiful little bookstore, and uh, Esther is phenomenal. Uh, she has, like, something like 4,000 references in this little store. And um, she asked me many times, she said, you should do a cookbook. And I said, look at that. I mean, you have so many cookbooks. Everything has been said, you know. Then uh, if I uh, ever do one, it will be, uh, uh, I think, it, it will be more like a story about, you know, uh, uh, being a chef and in, in, including some recipe, you know, the recipe I went through in my life. But just doing a cookbook for a cookbook, I think today it's 
there is so many. I mean, uh, everything has been said, you know, and we, uh, unless we find some new food on Mars or somewhere, but uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, the best spices I found is on Devon Street here. You know, when you go on Devon, uh, you have all those uh, Indian-influenced places, and they have phenomenal spice for very good price. Uh, the one thing about spice, it's um, uh, how fresh they are. And that's, uh, that's another thing that, for me, it's uh, uh, one of the big mystery. Why don't they put the date on those spice? Why we don't know... You know, when you buy a little bit of cinnamon or a little bit of whatever it is, you know, cumin, coriander, why we don't know when this thing was put in this, in this bottle, in this jar? I mean, we need to know because there is a huge difference between a jar that has been in the market for six years and something that was done, you know, six months before. And, uh, and that's uh, the only way you will know is obviously when you open it, when you taste it, but it's too late, you bought it, you know. And uh, I don't know if you remember this, uh, this uh, show in the, with uh, uh, Steinfeld, you know, when um, Kramer, he said he buys some bad fruits at the store and he want to bring back the fruits, you know, and everybody's giving me a trouble, giving him a trouble because he want to bring back the, the food that are not, the, the fruits that are not good. I think we should all do that. I'm fed up to buy peach, you know, nectarine on summer because we want those food. You know, we want that on the summertime. And you arrive home, you eat, and there is no juice. Those things are like tennis ball, you know, and you, we should just take it back, say, you know what, I don't want that. And you tell your buyer that uh, buy this thing for you guys to, better, to do something better. But we don't. We don't. We keep it and we put it in the garbage for them. And that's wrong. <laughs> that's, thank you very much. Merci. <laughs>